You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hi, I'm Christina Zacharias Aji. And I'm Claire Perini. And welcome to the Regent College Podcast. Friends, today we're welcoming back uh, Dr. John Walton, who we talked about a few weeks ago around faithful reading of the Old Testament or of the Bible in general, actually. Um, and today we're talking with him a very kind of about a complex and really important issue that we see in the Old Testament, which is the conquest, which he even kind of debunks our understanding of conquest. So John uh, co-authored a book with his son called The Lost World of the Conquest, and where he's sort of documenting and explaining new archaeological findings that help us understand Joshua in particular in context. And the book of Joshua makes a good case for how unfaithful reading could cause great harm. For example, the book has been used to justify the Crusades and the doctrine of discovery, and it's still being used today as justification, if not as fuel for Christian nationalism and Zionism. Of course, there have also been faithful readings of it, and that's what we will be talking about today. For this reason, we will start with archaeology. John, your book draws upon archaeological and textual evidence to reconstruct the historical context of the conquest. What are some key findings that have shaped your reading of Joshua? Well, you know, when I talk about the archaeological aspect, I'm not just talking about the excavations that have dug up the remains of ancient civilizations. One of the things that archeologists find are, of course, texts. And it's really more our understanding of texts that is sort of the offspring of archeology span that give us a clear understanding here. And in that category, we're talking about texts that help us understand the genre of ancient conquest accounts. Because, of course, we can't assume that they wrote about those things with the same rhetorical devices, the same conventions, the same conceptual world that we think of. Mm -hmm. And so it's those texts that have helped us to understand the genre in ancient light. Mm -hmm. It's helped us to understand the rhetorical devices uh, that they, they used. For instance, it's been demonstrated that typical of ancient conquest accounts, they use hyperbole and universalism in their statements. And that helps us understand how they tended to write about conquests rather than just imposing our own conventions or ideas. And of course, even the meanings of words. Uh, we try to understand the meanings of words and that's some of the key findings that we presented in the book. Mm -hmm. Of course, is a book done by myself and my son, J. Harvey Walton. And so we try to present the findings that come about from our careful study mm -hmm. of words to make sure we're understanding them well. Because as we all know, translation is wonderful and helpful, but in the end, for detailed work, it doesn't suffice. Mm. Uh, we need to try to understand Hebrew concepts and terms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and you, you also you talk about how the the conquest narrative needs to be understood mm -hmm. more as sort of like a worldview conflict rather than just a straight a straight out military campaign. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you mean by that, a worldview conflict and how that's different to how we might read it just as a straight up, sure. you know, um, bloodshed? <laughs> so Yahweh is bringing Israel into the land, not simply to give them a geopolitical country. Uh, Yahweh is bringing them into the land to be hosts to his presence. Mm. 
-hmm. It's his land. It's really not their land. Um, and so he's bringing it in to establish his presence in that land. And Israel, by virtue of their covenant relationship with Yahweh, are to be his hosts. Mm. So in that sense, uh, we're not just talking about a military campaign. This is a worldview conflict. Why can't the Canaanites be there? And of course, I'm using Canaanites as a general designation for all the peoples of the land, you know, the menu of seven peoples that are commonly mentioned. Mm -hmm. Why can't the Canaanites be there? Mm -hmm. They can't be there because they will corrupt the Israelites' commitment to the covenant and therefore make them unworthy and unsuccessful hosts and therefore jeopardize God's presence. So again, this is a worldview issue uh, because it has to do with Yahweh and his mm -hmm. role in the world, his place in the land, and how Israel relates to that in the covenant. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a matter of sort of sin and punishment and political conquest. Uh, there's a lot more going on here that's much more important than that, and that really minimizes uh, mm -hmm. that aspect of it. Mm -hmm. So hosting Yahweh's presence in the land, is that right. that's what, yeah. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that the Canaanite identity needs to be removed from the land. Right. Not decimated altogether, just removed mm -hmm. from the land uh, because it doesn't belong there. It will corrupt Israel. Mm -hmm. So it's that idea that's being presented. Mm -hmm. Yahweh refers frequently his intention to drive them from the land, not annihilate them. So again, we have to be careful of reading the text through their focal point instead of through ours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. thanks. Yes, that's a very important point that we will go back to. Uh, but before that, um, we usually come to the text and we either justify it by saying, uh, you know, God is just and he knows what he's doing, or we see it as a horrifying racial genocide and rule it out as a narrative written by humans in a culturally bound setting. Um, so how can your research help us engage with the difficult aspects of the book and grapple with challenging ethical questions? Again, uh, research such as this uh, helps us to read the text through their lenses instead of through our modern issues and modern questions and modern concerns. Um, mm -hmm. So, and that's that's true both on the theological level. We have to ask the question, is this an act of justice? And mm -hmm. we suggest that it's not. Mm. But also through the social level, that is, is this genocide? Is it racial in nature? And no, it is not. Uh, the text mm -hmm. has no trouble with Canaanites who live outside the land. There's mm -hmm. no racial genocide going on here. Uh, the idea of justice imposes a theological view on it. But the text never presents it in that way. It doesn't present it as judgment on the Canaanites. It doesn't present it as God sort of vindicating his justice or carrying out his justice. So we have to be careful to read it the way the text presents it. Uh, it again, I would emphasize it's a clearing of Yahweh's land, not a mm -hmm. conquest of land for Israel. Mm. Clearing of Yahweh's land for his habitation. Now, in, we, drew, we drew some similarities to a modern concept and recognizing it's a modern concept, but the one of eminent domain. Eminent mm -hmm. domain, of course, occurs when a government, for instance, wants to claim some land for its own purposes, which it would explain as for the common good, whether it's for 
extra land for a freeway or extra land for a runway for an airport or whether it's for a national park or whatever it might be, many times these situations occur where the government says, we need your land. Mm. And that's not because they're punishing the people who live there or judging mm -hmm. them. It's not because those people have done anything wrong. It's just, it's the idea that this land now has a different use that mm. is going to be made of it. And the government, which is in the authority, of course, is therefore driving out, right? Pushing out uh, the inhabitants. Now, of course, in eminent domain, typically in the Western world, people are paid for the property. They don't always think they get a fair price, but at least there's the you know, the sense that, that they're being paid for it. Uh, other parts of the world and other times, that wouldn't necessarily be the case. Mm. But again, the idea is the important one, that that people being pushed out of the land is a clearing of the land for another use. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, that that's the, the basis for it. Um, so mm. in that sense, uh, the, the idea of driving out the Canaanites uh, was because there was another use for the land. And uh, in the process... Yahweh said that Israel was not to profit from these people. Mm -hmm. That is, they couldn't marry them, they couldn't enslave them. And that's where we come to the idea that uh, the term, and we'll talk about it in a minute, uh, the term harem has to do with making them ineligible for human use. Mm -hmm. So often it's translated utterly destroy. That's not the point of the word, but we'll get mm -hmm. to that in a minute. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um John, so much of your work is just so helpful in understanding the ancient Near East and how that helps us understand, obviously, the Bible, which is set in an ancient Near Eastern culture. Um, and so then you you sort of talk in your book about this concept of holy war. Can you um, help us understand uh, how was an ancient understanding of holy war, how does that challenge or enrich our understanding of the biblical text, particularly in relation to to these kind of, do you want us to call it the conquest or do you want us to call it the clearing <laughs> you know, I, clearing is more accurate, yeah. but it just doesn't roll off the tongue very no, well. Quite, people wouldn't know what I was talking about. So right, we do right. have the word conquest in the title, even yeah. though we say, no. It's not a conquest. Exactly. That's what I was like. It's like, should we be changing? We should start right now. We could. This could be the beginning of the like, you know, clearing get rid of the word conquest. It's all about a clearing. Yeah. Anyway, so. Holy war. Holy war. Um, at one level, in one sense, all war in the ancient Near East was holy war. In, and I mean that because they, they have the rhetoric of divine initiative and divine participation. So if you mean by holy war that the gods are calling for it and leading it, yes, everybody in every war in the ancient world would have said that's what was going on. Mm -hmm. But that's mm -hmm. not really what people mean by holy war today. Mm -hmm. okay? But in that sense, you could say that ancient warfare is holy war because it's based on the rhetoric of divine initiative and participation. On the other hand, when we talk about what people often mean by it today, no war in the ancient Near East was holy war in the sense of punishing the infidels or converting them to a different faith, which are mm -hmm. often the things that we've connected with holy war from the Crusades all the way through. Get rid of the infidels and forcibly convert people. Mm. Nobody was doing that in the ancient world. And mm -hmm. so uh, we don't find a continuity on that count. Yeah. So in that sense, holy war is sort of an unfortunate general term, which 
you know, people pack too much into. And again, we have to be careful to understand warfare in an ancient world context, not impose mm-hmm. our modern ways of thinking on it. Mm-hmm. I know I keep saying that, but I'm still wondering if everybody's listening when I say that. Mm-hmm. I've been saying this for years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Why is nobody listening? <laughs> it takes some time. My own little echo chamber. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. We're listening, John. We're totally listening. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, um, we're trying at least yeah, to, <laughs> you know, comprehend everything. Is it, I'm, I'm thinking um, what could have, like one of the aspects that maybe change in the modern world um, could be, or even since the, you know, the Crusades and stuff, uh, if our understanding of faith has shifted uh, from more of a, lifestyle or uh, like orientation in terms of how we live and how we uh, practice uh, you know anything in life uh, versus a more cognitive and verbal expression yeah I think that we've made faith an abstraction mm-hmm. um, uh, you know in the Old Testament I think they would have tended to think of faith as more an action you act mm-hmm. in faith uh, and mm-hmm. it's connected to faithfulness and things of that sort instead of having a faith, you know. Mm. And yes. So when we talk about the faith of Israel, which I probably have done in the past, um, that we we are in danger of turning something into an abstraction that they wouldn't have thought of in that terms. Mm-hmm. Once you move outside mm-hmm. of Israel to the rest of the ancient Near East, you certainly can't talk about that. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. do not have a religious faith or a theological faith. Uh, mm-hmm. spiritual faith they don't they have religious practice which involves taking care of the gods it doesn't involve a belief system doesn't involve a moral system doesn't involve any sort of life commitment it's just you got to take care of the gods if you expect the gods to work on your behalf and if you don't take care of the gods you're in trouble mm-hmm. and so it it's not really a faith they have no doctrinal statement or you know anything of that sort even israel i mean we can find things that we call a credo but it's a very brief mm-hmm. statement you know and uh so the whole concept of doctrinal statements or statements of faith are, are kind of our modern world and we shouldn't transpose them into the ancient world oh did i just say that again yeah we mm. <laughs> shouldn't read it through our lenses <laughs> Sorry, did you? So you're saying we shouldn't read it through yeah, our own yeah, lenses? Yeah. yeah. Right. It's just a thought that just came to <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Just, just kind of never come across to me before, right? <laughs> yeah, I've heard someone talking about that before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, kind of going back to this concept of of harem, which you talked about earlier. You know, changing translations and and kind of re-understanding certain words that we've come to know as this is what it means. That's that's not an easy process. Can no. you talk to us about that? how you sort of the process that led to the translation of harem sure and it's really not any different than lots of the other issues that i've tackled Mm -hmm. Uh, basically Mm -hmm. as you know the lost world series is based on a combination of trying to read the hebrew text closely uh fresh if if need be uh, but also combine that with uh, cultural information from the ancient world so that we can read it in its cultural context. Mm. So linguistic context and cultural context. And of course, add to that literary context when we talk about genres or rhetorical devices. And that's the basic thrust of the ancient world series. 
So with when we're trying to do a close reading of Hebrew words, we do it the way basically any linguist does it who works in these languages. Mm-hmm. Meaning of a word is determined by its usage. And that's true in the modern world as well. Words change their meaning because right. usage changes. Right. And then you can't use it the way you used to. You've got to use it this new way. And so, you know, meaning is determined by usage. But of course, the contrast there is meaning is not determined by its history or its etymology right. or what it used to mean. You know, because it doesn't mean mm-hmm. that anymore. And so when we're trying to understand a word, what we do is we use that principle and we explore its usage. So we gather together all the uses of a word. We look at all the contexts. We make careful distinctions as we need to. That is, for instance, a noun will not always carry the same semantic footprint as its accompanying verb. Sometimes it will, sometimes it won't. Okay, so we have to be aware of those kinds of distinctions. We understand that words take on uh, sometimes their own unique meanings when they're in combination, whether it's an idiomatic phrase or combination of a verb and a proposition. So these are just all standard lexical semantic tools uh, for evaluating text. And so that's what we do. We look at the word harem. We look at all the places it occurs. We make all the appropriate distinctions. And then we try to identify how can all of those contexts brought together help us to understand the meaning of the word. Mm. And that's that's our process. And so when we did that, we found that there really was, in our minds, uh, based on our research, no justification for thinking of cherem as utterly destroy. Mm-hmm. The, the translation that you sometimes find of place it under the ban is closer in the sense that cherem says it's ineligible for human use. So in that sense, you could say it was banned who's under the ban. Mm. But I think that when most English readers read place it under the ban, they have no clue what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those are the two typical translations, utterly destroy and place under the ban. And uh, we just felt like that's really not helping at all for people to understand these passages. They're making an assumption about what Israel is called to do. Mm -hmm. As if you read, if you translate it utterly destroy, well, then it looks like God told Israel to utterly destroy the Canaanites. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, let's mm-hmm. take a look at the word. What makes you think that it means that? Mm-hmm. So that's the process. Of course, there are whole dissertations on the word harem. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of the commentaries talk about it. And so we we had to do all of that research. Yeah, yeah. So that word and you know reading this this uh chapter in your book just blew my mind because it's the same word in arabic we use the same word in arabic um haram Mm -hmm. and it's um you know muslims and in islam it's it's uh used in from my understanding in the same way i mean i know it in arabic but reading about it in your work it's almost the same. It's uh, th- there's something that is not forbidden, that is forbidden by God. It's not allowed. It's unclean. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't um, imply a specific, um, it doesn't have specific implications other than stay away from mm, it. Right. Seclusion, not destruction. Exactly. Yeah. So, so is it the same? Yeah. It, it's similar. Uh, I don't think it carries the unclean aspect to it. Okay. Okay, but still the idea that that's 
that's sequential see um uh, kind of set off set up it, it's not so even in english we use the word harem harem is the king's wives and and they're secluded mm -hmm. not just anybody gets access there or anything of that sort mm -hmm. uh, but you don't destroy it <laughs> right. you know yeah that just means it's it's not eligible for common use mm -hmm. yeah. so yeah it has some similarities mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah that makes so much sense for someone from the middle east actually yeah so. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. thanks christine that's so good getting your little uh those insights in there from you um yeah i was like oh yeah, yeah totally things make sense yeah totally mm -hmm. the, the other the other issue in the in the story is why the canaanites like you know was it their sin that's kind of led god to punish them um sort of you know, did they, did, did, were the Israelites kind of, was God keeping the Israelites in the deserts for 40 years until the time God was ready to punish the Canaanites? You know, mm -hmm. what's, what's going on? Why the, why the Canaanites? And is that arbitrary? Is it particular? Like what's, yeah. Well, as we've said already, it's not just Canaanites. Right. It's Canaanites right. and Amorites and Gergesites and Jebusites right. and right all of these, mm -hmm. these groups, which all would have had their own culture and all of those things. Uh, but all of them have in common the fact that they would be potentially corruptive mm. to Israel and their covenant commitments. So it, to ask why them, it's not because of their individual actions. It's because they happen to be in the land that God has mm. chosen as the land that he's going to settle in. So it's not about them. It's about God mm -hmm. that he's going mm -hmm. to settle there. And whoever had been there and whatever their practices had been, they would need to be cleared out. Mm -hmm. And that's how it works for eminent domain. Eminent domain doesn't just say, well, uh, because we're building an airport, so we're going to get rid of all the people who are not um, who are not uh, European Americans or something, mm -hmm. right? It's Everybody needs to go because they happen to be on the land that's being required for alternate use. And so in that sense, it's really nothing about the Canaanites. Uh, they are, um, they are not, it doesn't say that they're being punished for their sin. Mm -hmm. There's no language of punishment. Right. Um, there's one text that kind of uses the Hebrew verb parkat, which is sometimes translated punish, but that's the idea of visiting consequences. It's not, it's not inherently mm -hmm. a punishment word. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, in that sense, we contend that they're not being punished for sin. Um, they're certainly not guilty of violating the covenant. The, the covenant was not made with them. They're not mm -hmm. expected to say, oh, we shouldn't worship idols or we should worship Yahweh alone. They're not in the covenant. So those can't be violations. Uh, we understand that there are some generic violations mentioned, uh, divination, witchcraft, child sacrifice, right? Those, those sometimes come up in the text, but these are stereotypical. Now, that is, mm -hmm. they, they just use language to say worst possible things mm. uh, because that's the rhetoric of warfare. Um, you mm -hmm. find the same kind of thing in um, in the New Testament, for instance, in Galatians 2.15, where it talks about how we, the one group was born Jewish and not sinful Gentiles. Sinful Gentiles. It's, it's not like every Gentile is guilty of those things and Gentiles are being punished for this sinfulness. It's just a stereotypical way of characterizing Gentiles who are not Jews. Mm. And mm -hmm. uh, we find that kind of usage of language all the time in the ancient Near East. 
to stereotypically categorize the other person. Uh, this is a common rhetoric in warfare contexts. And again, we even find that today. I mean, what does what does Putin and the Russians keep saying about Ukraine? Oh, mm. they're child killers. They're Nazis. They're this and that. You know, mm -hmm. this is not stuff that could be documented or stand up in a court of law. No, they're stereotypical claims that try to paint the other group in the worst possible way. Mm. And mm -hmm. so, in that sense, um, I think that we've been misreading to categorize the Canaanites as specifically guilty of these particular crimes. It's part mm -hmm. of the rhetoric of warfare. Mm -hmm. In terms of whether they were in the wilderness 40 years waiting for the Canaanites to get bad enough, um, that comes out of a reading of Genesis 15, 16. And we have a whole chapter on that that suggests mm -hmm. a radical retranslation of that passage. Mm -hmm. um, that's has in translations that are out there, it seems to suggest that they uh, this is not going to happen until the fourth generation because the sins of the Amorites are not yet complete and that therefore it's building up to this uh, climax, this grand finale when they're horribly wicked and then God can dispense of, with them. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that that's a misreading of Genesis 15, 16. And of course, we spend a whole chapter trying to substantiate uh, a different reading of that. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. We're, yeah, there's so much we get wrong. <laughs> it's like, it makes you think, can I even read, can I read my English translation? You know, You're, <laughs> and, and trust and it. Please, yeah, somehow <laughs> communicate to your listeners yeah. that uh, mm -hmm. this is not a reason for them to abandon their Bibles. No, it's just yeah. a, a reason for them to pay careful attention. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Again, a high percentage of, of the verses in the Bible, there aren't any translation questions or problems. Um, but it's a good idea to be um, aware of various translations in some difficult passages. Of course, even as I mm -hmm. say that, even if they went to every translation they've got in Bible Gateway, they would see pretty much the same thing in Genesis 15, 16 that everybody mm -hmm. has. Yeah. And we're suggesting mm -hmm. something different. That's why it's so important to us to say, um, what is our evidence? Mm -hmm. How do mm -hmm. we come to that conclusion? And, and we do that very carefully. And at that point, it doesn't become a question of, um, well, we have 38 votes for the traditional translation and <laughs> right. one vote against, this is not about voting. Right. But likewise, it's not about, well, this has been traditional for a long time, so I'm going to stick with it. It's mm -hmm. about evidence. It's got to be about evidence. And that's mm -hmm. why we present the evidence so thoroughly so that even mm -hmm. someone without the expertise in Hebrew can track our evidence and see how we arrive at our conclusions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Now, going back to the Canaanites, uh, I think the point that I love the most is when you talk about Rahab's declaration mm. and how... He's a rock star. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, can yes, can you talk a little bit about that? Like how important her declaration is to our understanding of God's dealings with these nations that lived in the land. Sure. So, so here's, this is a great example. You know, the narrator has crafted this book. Mm -hmm. Okay. And therefore the narrator is using Rahab's speech. 
And we could talk to her blue about whether Rahab said all of those things and understood all those things this way or that way. We can't get to Rahab. We can't interview her. We can't cross-examine mm. her. We certainly can't psychoanalyze her. We cannot get to Rahab. All we've got is what the narrator gives us about mm. Rahab. And of course, the narrator is the one with the authority. Mm. So I can't entertain the idea that, well, the narrator really twisted that around. If I say that, I've got nothing. If the narrator is not reliable, then I've got no mm -hmm. authority because the authority is vested in the narrators, right? All graphe, all scriptures inspired. This mm -hmm. document that the narrator has produced is what carries the authority of God. And therefore, I'm I'm going to consider that reliable. Mm -hmm. And whether he's, uh, he's, however he's presenting Rahab's speech, this is how he wants us to understand it, whatever her mm -hmm. words would have been. Because, of course, she didn't speak Hebrew, just saying. Okay, and so, so in that sense, um, what the way Rahab's speech is presented is the way the narrator wants us to understand what's going on right. here, and her speech is foundational for the book because it shows that from the narrator's perspective, and again, I accept that the narrator's perspective, the Canaanites knew. Mm -hmm. They knew Yahweh's track record. They knew Yahweh's reputation. They knew Yahweh's objectives. And if a God mm -hmm. is doing all of that and shows himself capable of doing that, step aside, mm -hmm. get out of the way, mm -hmm. right? We have to do that in our own lives all the time. Get out of the way, right? Because mm -hmm. God's doing what he's doing. And that's mm -hmm. the importance of, of Rahab's speech. It suggests that a wise person would have gotten out of the way. Mm -hmm. But of course, they, they didn't. Um, and and from a human standpoint, we're not surprised that they didn't. I mean, right. you know, so to that extent, Rahab's important to the narrator. And if she's important mm -hmm. to the narrator, she's important to our interpretation of the book. Right. Mm -hmm. So we don't ask the question, what do I learn from Rahab? We ask the question, what do I learn from the narrator's presentation of Rahab? Mm. Rahab does not carry the message of the book. The narrator carries the message of the book. We don't learn the lessons of Joshua from Rahab. We learn the lessons of Joshua from the narrator. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay? So if we ask a question like, you know, can we extrapolate from what Rahab does for our own sense of response? Nope, that's going the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. We're tracking the narrator. We're not tracking the characters. Mm -hmm. okay? I think there's a lot to commend Rahab here, but of course I'm stuck with what the narrator gave me. Right. There's a lot mm -hmm. to commend about Joshua, but I'm stuck with what the narrator gave me. Right. And I can only see these characters through the narrator's eyes. And that's what's important because they're the ones that have been moved by the spirit to produce an inspired document that I consider authoritative and that I'm, I'm tethered to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm tethered to the text. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, that was the other book that we talked about. Yeah. So at any rate, um, <laughs> you know, so what can we draw from it? Um, the, can we say, for instance, that the God always gives sinners a chance or always gives Gentiles a chance or only always gives, I'm, I'm hesitant about extrapolating that far if I don't mm -hmm. see the narrator extrapolating for me. Right. Mm -hmm. Again, that's my mm -hmm. commitment to being bound to the narrator. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what I try to be careful about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
It makes me, it's really helpful. It, it makes me think about when we were talking about your other book, The Faithful Reading, about, um, the, you know, one of the principles is that we'll find God's vision and will within the narrative. And so then again, onto the, hopefully that's what's being communicated through the, narr- the narrator, which is what you're saying. But it feels like there's sometimes a gap. <laughs> and maybe even in this story, a gap between God's vision for the land and for the people and then what actually happened. And then we've seen, we mm-hmm. see that all the time, like God's visions for things and then how actually people play them out. There's a gap. And so do you think that's what's happening here? Is there a gap between the vision and what happened? I suspect that I could say there's a gap between what God was planning for yeah. <laughs> and what the Canaanites actually did. Not that the Canaanites surprised God in their response, mm. but ideally <laughs> they should have said, here, we're just laying down our weapons right here and we're leaving, you know, because mm-hmm. we get the get the picture of the greater good for God's presence here in this land. And, and we're moving. Now, I, I don't want to say God expected that or God planned for that because God knows all things and he knows that's not what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But there you mm-hmm. could see a gap, a gap between what the ideal response would have been and what the Canaanites did. Mm-hmm. It's not surprising. And again, I'm sure it didn't surprise God any more than it surprises us. Um, in terms of the Israelites, and this is what some people will do. I've heard this interpretation many times. Uh, that God really didn't have the, what happened in mind, this grand warfare and things like that, and that the Israelites somehow got the crazy idea that God wanted them to to destroy all of these people, and you know, and that for uh, they they went rogue, you know, mm. they're they're off the tracks, they everything went south. Uh, what's another one? Pear shape, you know, yeah. whatever, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it. it it didn't go the way it was supposed to based on an Israelite misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. I find that an extremely difficult position because the only thing I have that reflects the Israelites understanding is the narrator. Right. And I've got to consider the narrator reliable or I have nothing. And mm-hmm. so to that extent, the narrator doesn't present it as, well, they thought they should do that, but that was wrong headed from the start. I mean, you get enough of that in judges. Mm, <laughs> the narrators yeah. know the difference between yeah. when people are, are on task or not. And so to that extent, um, if the narrator doesn't bring this out mm-hmm. uh, and he doesn't, well, then I can't think that there's a gap between what God wanted and what the Israelites did. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, you get that that very poignant picture from the narrator um, with the commander of the Lord's army at the end of chapter five. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm in that way, it's clear that there's an army there mm-hmm. and that it's mm-hmm. intended to carry out God's designs. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. from an Israelite perspective, I don't see anything that suggests they deviated from God's plan. Right. Except, of course, Achan. Achan oh. does, <laughs> but the narrator brings that out. Yeah. You know, he, right. He did his own thing. Mm-hmm. So we also have to remember that in two, the, the last two major campaigns, northern and southern campaigns, that the Israelites were not the aggressors. Mm-hmm. The peoples of the land were the aggressors. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the two major campaigns. I mean, the first one, the central campaign with Jericho, I, and Bethel, you know, yes. But that's that's very minor. 
the two huge mm -hmm. campaigns, North and South. Israel didn't start those. Mm -hmm. So had the Canaanites actually yielded to Yahweh, either left or joined the community of faith, mm -hmm. would you have imagined all the campaigns to be like Jericho, where they pray and kind of it was given to them rather than taken by force? Um, if the peoples of the land became cooperative, you wouldn't even need a Jericho. The walls mm -hmm. didn't have to fall down if the people left. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. to that extent, I don't know that Jericho is the model for how it was supposed to be everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. There's no indication of that. Uh, mm -hmm. And we see God intervening at a place like Gilgal, I'm sorry, Gibeah. Uh, mm -hmm. In Gibeah, we have the hailstones, we have the sun and moon prayer, uh, and those things, God's playing a role, but it's not like walk around the city, you know, and watch mm -hmm. the walls tumble down. Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. to that extent, I'm not sure that um, there'd be any evidence to suggest that everything was supposed to go like Jericho. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, this is maybe more a question for theology than biblical studies. Um, uh, but yeah, I know, I know. Do you think, can you go? Can you go there? I feel I believe. I believe you can. Um, you know, so in terms of just our understanding of God's judgment, you know, so uh, if we're to understand them as, you know, clearing, which we're, you know, we're totally on board with that. You know, that new language we're going with clearing here rather than conquest or destroy absolutely. or annihilation or whatever. Um, um, but how does that? How does your understanding of of God's? How do, how, do, how does that change? maybe our understanding of God's judgment in the Bible more generally and how we, how we understand that. And then I've got another, well, I've got the another theological question for you too, but let's yeah. go with that one first. You see the problem there because mm -hmm. all of your question is hinging on the word judgment. Right. Right. And I've tried to make the point that this wasn't judgment. judgment. Yeah. Right. So if mm -hmm. it's not judgment, then certainly we can't extrapolate right. anything about how God does right. judgment. Because right. He wasn't yeah. Right. Good. Judgment. <laughs> so it's a moot so, point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So in that sense, um, yeah, I, I think we have to keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, so I can't really have implications for how God judges, mm -hmm. uh, and um, even even so, um, I'm always very careful about extrapolating. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm not as careful as I ought to be, and somebody has to catch me on it and say, um, "Aren't you doing exactly what you tell us we should be doing?" <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And that's usually my son telling me that. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, so. <laughs> So I'm I'm cautious about extrapolation, uh, even if you could somehow talk about what God is doing to the Canaanites here, mm. um, to use that as extrapolation for, uh, and I'd be very careful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was actually hoping you would say that we can't, we probably can't learn much about God's judgment from <laughs> from this. And can't apply it to, you know, seeing other nations around us, the Christian nation and the non-Christian nation and all that, you know, um, because that's how it's been used. Um, so is the book teaching or not teaching us about war, violence, God's presence and the other? What is it teaching mm. us? Well, it's not teaching us about warfare. Because there's nothing like this that's comparable anywhere at any time. Mm -hmm. So it's not teaching us about warfare. Um, mm -hmm. Even if it were making statements about warfare, we couldn't assume that they were universals that were uh, binding for everybody. Because we have 
we have guidelines for warfare in Deuteronomy 20, but they're mm -hmm. not guidelines that we would pick up and use today. They're mm -hmm. still culturally situated. And so we'd have to be very careful about that. Uh, certainly, it, it helps us to understand the um, sanctity of God's presence and how important it is to preserve that. Again, it's not that the sanctity of God's presence itself was threatened. It was that Israel, as caretakers of God's presence, their integrity uh, was mm -hmm. threatened. Mm -hmm. And so if they were not honoring the covenant, then God would leave. Okay, so in that sense, uh, that's the level at which it operates. God's, God's sanctity is inviolable. So mm -hmm. that's, that's not the question. But of course, that does point us in the direction of what we suggest in the book of what we ought to be doing with the book of Joshua. Mm. That is not getting rules for warfare or a call to warfare or onward Christian soldiers or let's do the crusades or any of those kinds of things. Rather, mm. it talks about the importance of clearing out negative effects to God's presence. And that's what we need to think about in our own lives. God's presence is now within us. And the idea mm -hmm. that we need to do some serious clearing of the things that can threaten our commitment, our devotion mm -hmm. uh, to God's presence and to honoring that and respecting it in us, both individually and communally, by the way, of course, because mm -hmm. as the church, uh, mm. we, are, we are the presence of God. Paul does use the corporate there. And so in that sense, this idea of the needing to clear out things that will corrupt that's what we learn, but we move that to the appropriate level for today, understanding God's presence and where he resides. Mm. Mm. So then maybe, mm -hmm. were you going to say something else, Christina? I was going to ask a question that I may or may not include <laughs> in the recording. Can I, well, I was going to do that too. So you, you go, yeah. you go, if yours is jumping on from that and then I've got another one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, I want to ask specifically about politics and um, Zionism, Christian Zionism. How do you, I mean, both Christian Zionism and Zionism in general. Um, Very connected. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, yes. So, so, I mean, the reading of Joshua or the criticism for the, uh, of the book of Joshua, Joshua and the clearing out texts, uh, you know, that talks about um, racial genocide and all that is more now, like it's, it's a modern kind of criticism and it's coming out of the conflict in Israel-Palestine and how um, radical, you know, religious... Jews and Christians are reading Joshua and reading, you know, we need to clear out the land and we need to destroy the unclean, the Palestinians, the Arab, the yeah, Arabs, the whoever lives, Christians, non whoever it is who isn't a Jew. And so, like, it's it's majorly important that we stop reading the text mm. the way we used to. It's very, very dangerous. The text is not a, uh, a resource for our agendas. 
political mm -hmm. or theological or social or otherwise. And that's what we talked about with Wisdom for Faithful Reading last time. We can't just mm -hmm. mine the Bible for verses that we can pull out to support whatever our agendas might be. Mm. But people have done it time out of mind and they'll continue to do it. And nothing I say will change people's minds about having to do that. Although hopefully we can make some progress here and there. Mm. So mm -hmm. um, certainly in the Zionist movements, whether Jewish or Christian, uh, in the nationalism movements, whether American or something else, um, mm -hmm. people often have a desire to try to uh, draw on the Bible as support for their particular perspective and agenda. Mm. And often that's not done well. And I will mm -hmm. say that even with regard to positions that I myself might hold dear mm. or that I might have, have a real commitment to, um, we just can't use the Bible that way. Um, mm -hmm. To me, that comes as one form of taking God's name in vain. That is, we are using his words to justify our positions. Mm -hmm. And that's problematic. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that um, we can't criticize the Bible as if it is doing those things. Right. And we can't mm -hmm. use the Bible when we want to do those things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's nothing in modern politics that is um, that corresponds to Yahweh, who's going to dwell in the land in his temple that's going to be built by Israel. Mm -hmm. There is no temple being built. And uh, there's, you know, so there's no Yahweh in the land. Yahweh's presence is not there. Therefore, we can't talk about clearing the land for Yahweh's presence. It's, we're not, mm -hmm. Christians shouldn't be thinking in terms of a temple that needs to be built to hold Yahweh's presence. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of your listeners may have disagreements with that, I'm sure, you know, but I'm just trying to say how I see this. We'll just include your email address at the end and they can. Yeah. Just... yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Call him off and I call mean, him late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, hopefully students that, you know, studied at Regent or they, they've, t people that have taken courses or listened to the podcast, um, they would have a, a better understanding of mm. Zionism and um, and violence mm. and all that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially at Regent. Yeah, yeah. I um, my question was going to be along those lines, Christina. So we're mm -hmm. in sync. So okay. that's great. Um, now, John, I understand you've retired, so that means you're not really doing much these days, right? <laughs> that's right. So you're not well, you're not doing. I'm not getting paid. Yeah, right, right. I'm doing, right? <laughs> what are what are you working on at the moment? Sort of in your biblical studies post, yeah. you know, post full time employment. Sure. You know, getting paid for it in a. School. Well, they've let me keep my office, which is a wonderful benefit. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I'm sitting in it now and I come in every day and do my research and writing. And so it's it's a wonderful thing. Um, it gives me more opportunity for travel speaking, which there's plenty of that lined up. And um, so that's as well. In terms of the research and writing projects right now, uh, we're we're up to indexing for the Lost World of the Prophets. That'll be out in February. Wow. And so that'll be the next one in the Lost World series. Uh, I've just finished writing the manuscript of a book called, that I'm calling, Advances in the Lost World of Genesis. It's not a revised mm -hmm. edition. It is kind of next step up. Um, 15 years since Lost World of Genesis uh -huh. 1 was published. And mm -hmm. 
So this will talk about some of the new ways to communicate the ideas, some places where I've tweaked my view, other places where new terminology or new illustrations, and also over 60 FAQs. Mm. Oh, wow. Audiences raise questions all the time and critics raise questions all the time. And so for me to kind of give my answers to the typical list of questions, that's kind of Mm -hmm. all through there as well. Yeah. So that one I've done, I'm done writing the manuscript. I'm still getting some friends to proof it. And, um, but that one's coming along. Yeah. Uh, I'm also doing a two volume commentary on Daniel. Hmm. And that's, um, that's co-authored with my uh, colleague here at Wheaton, Aubrey Buster. And so we're just getting ready to turn in volume one, hopefully next month. And then volume two, maybe we hope by the end of the year. So that's in Erdman's Nycott series. Mm-hmm. So that's coming along as well. And maybe finally, uh, there's a, a series which really just getting started. Uh, the series is called Ancient Literature for Old Testament Studies. Mm-hmm. It's a 15 volume series uh, that introduces readers to all the varied literature of the ancient world. It's not translations, Mm. it's introductions, robust introductions Mm. of all of the different pieces of literature, hundreds of pieces of literature of all genres. um, And in each one, we'll talk about and what's the significance of this for for the Old Testament Mm. to understand Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the cultural context, the cultural river. So so that's, and I'm going to be general editor of, of that series. And so we're just getting started on that. Oh, wow. How long will wow. that take? That sounds like a massive project. I'm thinking at least a decade. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you, so you're set for the next decade then with things to yeah, do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they'll be able to, to, they'll be able to put the unedited proofs on my casket. <laughs> oh, man. Hopefully you'll have the time yeah, to finish all the work and hopefully you'll have time uh, to come on the podcast again. I mean, so many new books and we want to hear about all of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, always enjoy the conversation. Yeah. Thanks, John. Thanks so much for your time. It's been so good to be with you. Sure. Yeah. Good to talk to you. Thanks Claire, again. Christina, good to talk to you. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and feel like you learned from John, then we would love you to leave us a review and rate the podcast through your podcast platform. And let someone else know. Share the episode with someone who you think would benefit from it. Um, Finally, if you're able to, then you could also leave um, or give us, send us a donation by heading to rgnt slash give and specify that your gift is for the podcast and we would love to hear your thoughts and guest suggestions if you have any so email us to podcast at regent-college.edu thanks for listening to the regent college podcast follow us on facebook instagram and twitter to discover more about regent college its upcoming events conferences courses and more content like this visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net.